The opinions expressed in the Epsilon Theory podcast represent the personal views of the participants and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Salient. This information is neither an offer to sell nor a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. Any offering or solicitation will be made only to eligible investors and pursuant to any applicable private placement memorandum and other governing documents, all of which must be read in their entirety. Welcome, everyone, to the next installment of the Epsilon Theory podcast. I think we are uh, up to our grand number of three now, but uh, uh, I'm joined here today with the deputy CIO of Salient Partners, my friend and partner, Rusty Quinn. Welcome, Rusty. Thank you, Ben. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm having a good day today, thanks. Got a visit <laughs> from the, uh, the wife and child at work, which is always a welcome diversion. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. I, we were just talking earlier. We've both got the, uh, the southern voice. I, mine comes out more, I think, when, I, when I'm doing things like this. Well, now, you're, you're from uh, you're Alabama. How long were you in Alabama before you left uh, God's Own Earth? Born and bred, as they say, yeah. right, in Alabama. No, it's uh, uh, there for uh, 18 years until I went off to, to, to college, all the way up to, uh, to Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, well, you left the Deep South to go to Vanderbilt. Well, I was uh, I was born in the literally, quite literally, in the hills of Arkansas. Not like uh, you know, Bill Clinton from the the plains of Arkansas. Which right, right. Not nearly right. as many uh, unsavory characters. But uh, no, my uh, my accent is is almost completely gone. You do have a little bit more of a draw. I, I do, and it, it really does come out more when I speak publicly or or on radio. It's it's an it's the oddest thing. I I, I don't get it. <laughs> Well, my mine mine usually only comes out when I'm on the phone or in a room with my with my father. So right, right. this was a, this was a source of great amusement when uh, I started my career in, in New York, and uh, you know I was working for a, a small investment banking firm there. And uh, whenever the assistant would find out that you know it was a nine seven nine area code, and it must have been Rusty's father calling, you'd get this sort of crowd of people outside of my <laughs> office because my my voice would instantly change. It was it, a it, change, it, was, it right. was a phase change in in my voice and the way that I communicated and. In all the, uh, That's great. It, it, it is interesting going from one nation to another, right? For, oh, sure. Because I, I feel like I am, in the way I speak, a man without a country. Because I, describing this to you earlier, when I when I go to a restaurant or a fast food place and I, I leave my name, I don't say Ben. I don't leave my name as Ben because it always gets reported as Bill, Dan. <laughs> and in fact, one person said Bim. <laughs> to which the answer was yes. Yes, yes that's right. That's right. The answer is yes. And, and and I go back to Alabama and it doesn't work either because Ben has, has two syllables. That's right. In Birmingham, it's, it's Ben. Ben, go pick up the P. Right, yeah. right. right. I, I'm, I'm fixing to go pick up the, you know. The, that's right. So I'm, I'm, I'm a man without a country. But it's good to have you uh, on, our, on, our, on our podcast here. Appreciate you having me. I look forward to many future such We'll podcasts. make it a, a regular uh, occurrence. Uh, and as always, uh, joined with Michael Correo here, our director of communications behind the glass, as they say, uh, sports radio. Hey, Michael. Hi. Thanks for joining us today, Rusty. So uh, we've all been talking about the presidential election lately, and I learned recently that uh, you, Rusty, have uh, a very personal anecdote about uh, Mr. Trump. 
So I think as it pertains to very personal anecdotes, I think we have to apply (laughs) a a continuum of what very personal means. And I think when it comes to Mr. Trump, uh, I want to be very Nothing clear. about hand sizes. <laughs> Let's be clear. Yeah. Very personal in, in sort of an absolute sense, but in a Mr. Trump relative sense, I would say this is, falls into the banal. Um, no, I, I, you know what? Interestingly, I, uh, I, I, I've met Mr. Trump on a couple of occasions. Um, he and I both having attended the same undergraduate institution. And actually, his daughter uh, was in the same graduating class uh, as I was at the, uh, the Wharton School at the University right. of Pennsylvania. Right. And uh, you know, a f- few kind of interesting observations uh, as I've observed both Trump and uh, Ivanka, his daughter, coming more into the fore. Um, first of all, the commencement itself was, was sort of a, a fascinating exercise. And when, when was it? How long ago was this? Uh, this was 12 years ago now. Okay. And uh, so the, the Donald and his, his now wife um, were both... Uh, there at the commencement, along with the many other thousands of parents of graduates of, uh, of the university, uh, they were in their own seating section, and, and so the, the commencement takes place at, at Franklin Field, which is you know, one of the one of the great historical uh, athletic fields here in the United States. And uh, uh, he, but they were sitting in the track, and so it's uh, a track goes around the mm-hmm, field. Mm-hmm. Everyone was sitting up in the stadium. They they had a, a set of <laughs> aluminum chairs, sort of set down on, on the track, so everyone. You could tell everyone was sort of looking down on the, well, the the orange mop on top of his head. Was it a big contingent, or is this just, it's no, just, it's the just Donald the Donald and Melania just sitting off on their own? Just the two uh, taking in the festivities, and uh, you know, and, and everyone sort of observed it. But, you know, so you sort of get the impression of aloofness, but quite quite to the contrary, uh, you know, there was a reception as there often is after graduations and commencements uh, back at the uh, the Huntsman Hall, which is the the, the large building that uh, they built. Uh, named after John, John Huntsman, who was also a mm-hmm. graduate and, mm-hmm. and founded Huntsman Chemical. And uh, as you go into the reception, uh, my, my parents noticed off to the left, there was Donald and Melania standing by themselves in the entrance in this large foyer to the hall. And anyone who's sort of been to college in the Northeast and has come from the kind of places that we come from, Ben, yeah. you sort of have this experience of this sort of an out-of-body thing. But for the people who are from the Northeast... It's, it's very comfortable and almost to the extent that as they walked by Donald Trump, all of these families who I could tell, no, you're from Jersey, you're from Philly, you're from New York, they didn't want to show that they were impressed or surprised oh, exactly. or at all. Exactly. I oh see, people, you know, I see right. people like Donald Trump all the oh, time. Yeah, yeah. The two exceptions are parents of people like us from the South. and then parents of, of immigrant students. And so the, the two people who were actually willing to go up to Donald, who was just standing over at the, there in the corner... The first was the the father of uh, one of the Chinese students who had graduated and had come over from uh, China to study at, at the Wharton School, and went over there to just ask very you know for a picture, and and Donald and Melania were happy to oblige and just talk to you know for five six minutes. Right. And of course, the second person to walk up was my my mother. Of course. Right. And, yeah. and so I'm I'm a, you know I'm I'm twenty one twenty two years old and a little bit embarrassed, uh, but you know of course she walks up to him and and the truth is he actually couldn't have been more gracious. That's that's great. And uh, sat there talking to my mother for, it might have been 10 minutes about, you know, how clear it was that, you know, to have, you know, to gotten here and to, you know, seen the success of, you know, coming here and, and you know, having your son come to the, this institution and, you know, asking her questions about her garden and her home and her family and history. So, so let me ask you on yeah. this, because this is, I swear, Michael, we're going to tie this back into <laughs> to, to investing, but did Trump strike you as authentically interested in that conversation with your mother? Did she see it as, as authentic? 
Yes. N- not only that, and I'll and I'll, yeah. I'll connect this as well. Yeah. Um, his daughter. So she, you know, there's there's a number of. It's a big school. Right. Uh, so uh, we actually didn't cross paths until senior year. Um, so we were both the the kind of students who put off the the basic courses until second semester of senior year. So we mm-hmm. don't gotten all the mm-hmm. interesting things mm-hmm. out of the way. You know, we have to take. I think it was marketing 100. Right, right, right. Marketing you had to fill. You had to fill in. That's right. So uh, I believe we were in marketing 101 together the first or second semester of our senior years. And the way Wharton does courses, you have a lecture once a week, and then you have one or two recitations, as they call them, smaller 10 to 12 person classes once or twice a week. And uh, she was in one of those classes with me. And the reality, she was one of the most genuine, intelligent, kind, very down to earth people that were actually in the Wharton School in that program. And, and just as you, you use the term authentic, right. that would actually be the word that I would use to describe her, which is it is so fascinating. Isn't it, though? Because I, I don't know whether I'm both, in a sense, I'm gratified to hear that. In a sense, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed, right? <laughs> I'd, like to, I'd, I'd like to think that they were, you know, as, 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 as phony or as uh, mendacious as, as the rest. So, so long as we're on the, 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 the Southern kick, you know, one of my favorite authors is... Uh, Tennessee Williams, right? So, 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 cat on a hot tin roof, mm-hmm. big daddy. You know, yep. so I was talking about mendacity. Mm-hmm. You know, mendacity, and 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 I, I, I find that this distinction between mendacity, which just surrounds us, in in, in every walk of, of, of modern life, and it, it is now, in fact, uh, not just expected, but is 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 part of the theory of markets today. When you talk about forward guidance, mm-hmm. when you talk about communication policy, it's this. Uh, explicit attempt to be mendacious, to use words for effect on investor preferences and the like, as opposed as, I'll call it, an honest or direct communication of what you really think about something. And it, it just, it, frankly, I think it's a big part of, of the, the, the hunger that exists out there, uh, whether you're talking about politically or for investment ideas, for someone to say something straight, to say something with authenticity, as opposed to for effect, and 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 I and I, I really do think that that's a big part of the appeal of Sanders, of Trump, is they 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 come across as authentic, and I, like I said, I don't know whether I'm I'm both I'm either relieved or a little bummed to hear that. In your experience, at least, Trump was actually authentic. Well, I, I, I don't know that Sanders is, or I don't think he is. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I do think that at times the, the the difference between just pure bombast and words for effect can be unclear. I mean, I, I'm, I think, for example, of um, some of the great writers of our time who were considered the most authentic. So if you ask any great fan of yeah, literature yeah, yeah, or theater, yeah, yeah. Who is the, who's the most authentic voice, you're going to hear a lot of people say David Mamet. And you're going to hear them talk about the way in which dialogue occurs in his plays. It's very natural. It's got uhs and ums and awkward mm-hmm, pauses mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm. crosstalk. But when you also think about those moments of pure bombast and just um, hyperbole, you yeah, also, think, you too, also right. think of Mammoth. And, and so right. the, there is no natural conflict Always between... Always be closing. Although, 
unfortunately, as an example, that, that scene actually wasn't in the original literary script of Glengarry Glen Ross. No, get out of no, here. No, the entire scene was, was not even there. It's very disappointing. The play itself is wonderful. Yeah. But that scene was written in the, in the screenplay, which I, I, I assume, man, it had some, some hand in, but not in the original. See, Michael, this, this is why I like having Rusty on board, because I, I, I think of myself as having the, 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 the pop culture references, right? But... But, but Rusty's always able to, 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 to one-up me here. Are we really That's calling David Mamet pop culture? Uh, yeah, I think you can. Okay. Yeah, I think Fair we enough. should. I'm moving on. Kevin Spacey is. Oh, well, yeah. That is true. Yeah. But I think the point is that, that, that you can, you know, authenticity. Right. There, there's no shortage of bombast, obviously, with no. Trump or with Sanders or, or with any of our cast of characters, right? But, 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 but there is something to the, the, this hunger for authenticity that I think does play out negatively for quote unquote career politicians, because I don't think you can be authentic. But I don't think they are. I, it, it, the important, and this gets back to many of the things you talk about. There's such a difference between real authenticity and the fact that people hunger for it. Yeah. And, and, you know, coming from, you know, a man who named his first son after Winston Churchill, right. <laughs> I'll use it as an example because it's another person that would people look at and say, this was a, the man for that time, a, a truly authentic leader. This is a man who also very learnedly and specifically decided where he would become tearful in a speech. And he would mark that in the speech. Where would he pause for effect? Where would he insert the ums and uhs of searching for the word that he knew he was going to deliver because it was next in, in, in that stretch? There is a purposeful... right appearance of authenticity right that is part of it is part of the art of the politician that i just i, I don't know that trump is something entirely new and i think everyone wants to buy into this notion yeah, this, of, of this him is, being a new thing this is a whole, so so my, my my wife's a dancer and she was saying that uh barishnikov was the same way that that there were a number of dancers who could leap like barishnikov but his great skill was making it look difficult for the audience, not that he would struggle with it, but he would like do a little pause or just take a breath before he engages on this grand leap, really to signal to the audience to say, okay, watch out folks, here it comes, and, and, an act of amazing athletic prowess, which of course it was, but it, but there was an intentionality to it. This, this uh, yeah, I, I kind of think how to process this. Well, it, it, you process it by looking at any hedge fund manager's presentation deck, because that's exactly what they're doing the entire time. This is rocket science. Pay us two and 20 to peer into our crystal ball and tell you the way that things are, are going to turn out. You know, we, we, we are in a business of massive egos, right? So if you don't come across as being smarter than the other person, it's, it's hard. sometimes it's hard to get taken seriously. I, well, I, I got to think more about this. this is, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very interesting thing, whether there is such a thing as true authenticity or not. Um, and maybe there's not, and yet, how to explain then the hunger for it? Well, but I, you know, I think the what's authentic in our business is it anything authentic in our business of asset management allocation. Well, I think people wear their. Oh, that's a good question. But see, I, I, what I've liked, and people on the the, the listening to the podcast don't necessarily know. Rusty's a great writer, so we're going to get more of his stuff published, hopefully, on the, the, the Epsilon Theory sandbox. And, and you've written a lot about, I'll say, portfolio construction, 
right? And what's what what is what is true for portfolio constructions with a with, with a capital T? I I think of authenticity at least as a as an attempt to get towards true with a capital T. So when I think about is there anything authentic in our business? You know what is you can't get absolutely to truth with a capital T, but at least get some sort of asymptotic approach to it, right? What what is the truth with a capital T in in, in, in investing in portfolio construction? You know, I, I think well, is it compounding? Is that is that kind of the, the you know death and taxes and compounding? Is that is that what we have to ultimately lose? We use these words like diversification. I I, I I don't know if that's elevated to that level. Well, they've, they've certainly become terms of art in that way. Yeah, and, but terms of art, but not right? terms of is authenticity. Is authentic to it? Well, no, because if we think, well, what, is, what does it mean to be authentic? It means for one's true motives and for one's motives that we hold out to the world to be true to be the same, right? Yeah, yeah, right, right, and, right, right. And by definition, diversification and discipline and being a long-term investor and not being a market timer, those are very rarely truly held beliefs but our beliefs that investors Everyone hold profess. out to be true because they must. It's, right. it's the sort of penance that investors pay to be considered part of the, the club, part of the universe of well-thought-of investors. And so you know, so much of, of, of what investors and certainly those of us who are practitioners in the industry are doing is being forced to pass the smell test. And as we talked about before in, in, in appearing intelligent, you know, I can tell you, you know, background as a uh, – uh, as an asset allocator, I spent a number of years at the Teacher Retirement System of Texas, uh, hiring hedge funds, hiring private equity yeah. funds, long only equity managers. And you go to conferences and you talk to people about what they do and what they look for. And we're, the, the, the story is process and the story is we have a disciplined way of looking at and building this, this roster of external managers. And many of them, in a very well-meaning you know, well sense, do that. And certainly my, my colleagues at, at TRS who are very talented do exactly that. But when you get down to it and you understand the real motivations that cause someone to hire a fund manager, to hire an external manager, so often it is, does this person seem smarter than the person I just had a meeting right. with? Right. And and so that becomes the true motivation, whereas the, the ulterior motivation or the one that we must profess out to the public is something different entirely. And and, and so when we start getting back in some of the things that, that I've been writing about and that I've been thinking about, so many of them focus on how investors think about portfolio construction and, and the, what they believe versus what they do. And the, you know, most investors believe in the concepts of diversification, but they still source 90% of their, their risk from stock market, principally in the United States. Mm -hmm. They're exposed mm -hmm. to equity risk. They're exposed to all these markets. They are bought into the notion of... Right. Diversification means I own both Ford and GM. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And you know, you, you know, as long as you own 20 of those stocks, you are diversified and, and, and everything will be fine. You know, when when they invest in alternatives, you know, as this notion of whatever alternatives is, you know, it can be for many different reasons, and and the the motivations for investing in so-called alternatives could be, I want to be different, I want to generate tracking error, which is probably a pretty good motivation. Could be I am concerned about interest rates, and I want to have a low risk investment that has a different sort of profile of returns. It could be this is what my other peers in this in in the asset allocator, asset allocator space are doing, and, and therefore I must do it too. Or I really believe that it's, we're in a low return environment and generating alpha is the most important thing that any of us can do. And, and, and there's all sorts of real and, and sort of on the surface motivations people have. 
But what people usually end up doing is focusing on defensive, low volatility right. diversifiers if they're not going to be invested in equity markets. But, you know, this is something I, I wrote a note about is the, the notion of Hobson's choice. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so, so Hobson was this guy who ran a, a livery stable in, in, in London. And his deal was, yeah, you can have any horse here I've got in the stable, um, except all the others. You, you, really, your only choice is the one right here at the front door. That's the only horse you're, you're really, you can really have as a choice. Uh, you know, Henry Ford, you can have any color Model T you want so long as it's black. Right? It's, it's a surrender or die. Right, it's, it's it's a choice that's where we really only have one choice, and you know John Maynard Keynes wrote about this in the 1930s, which has a lot of similarities to today, when he said that and he was talking about bankers at the time, but we can talk about investors or allocators or hedge fund managers, whatever we want to talk about today, but it's that uh, uh, reputation is uh, your your your. It's better for reputation to fail conventionally than to succeed unconventionally. He was writing about the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And it's so much the case today, right? I mean, just you're talking about, well, so long as I'm invested with smart guys, right? and they're all guys, right? That's another yeah, thing we can, we can talk about some other time, right? So long as you're invested with smart guys and, and you've got your... your, your following the conventions of what it means to be a quote-unquote good investor, then for, for your business risk, you've solved for business risk. You, you, you can fail conventionally in this respect and still be fine. Right? We see this all the time with, with investors. But, you know, God forbid you try something unconventional, even though you think in your heart of hearts it has a greater chance of success, meaning whatever that means for, 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 for your investment or your portfolio. And it was true then, and it seems to be the true now. So I guess my question to you, Rusty, right, is what aspects of investment convention are, in fact, useful, and which ones should we discard if we're prepared to succeed unconventionally? So I'll, I'll start by saying I think that in some cases, one could fairly compellingly make the argument that, make a, an argument for convention. Right. And I think in, in Hobson's Choice, you highlight the characteristics of a policy-driven market that you know ultimately ends up becoming a policy-controlled market. And if we're in a world where the U.S. retirement structure has $25 trillion in assets, most of which are underfunded, you could make an argument that says the convention of driving investments toward public equities and any of the other investments that everyone else is doing is in fact the right decision because you have this quasi-permanent prop of an underfunded $25 trillion system, yeah. which is largely the same thing that's made in a lot of ways, you know, JGBs, this perennial uh, risk-adjusted return um, league table leader because you have this massive population. Japanese government bonds. That's for, right. For the, yeah. Sorry yeah. about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you could, you could make that argument. But what I would say is the single most conventional way of thinking that strikes me as as being singularly bizarre okay. is this notion and this focus on the vehicle. And, and what I mean by that is as long as risks are encapsulated within some entity, we're all willing to see that as an entity that is worthy of investing $1 in and we think of it as $1 in exposure. 
There's a couple of examples of this. One of them is a publicly listed C corporation. And as we all know, every one of those corporations is not created equal. Some of them have chosen to include all sorts of risks on their own balance sheet, from direct leverage to operating leverage to businesses that have a tremendous amount of volatility and all these underlying characteristics that make that entity different. But when we think about our equity risk, we think, well, I have a dollar invested in an equity. Well, what does that actually mean? What do I actually own? The same thing exists for private fund vehicles. When I invest in a private fund, I own this. It may be levered. It may be not. It may have this you know, nearly permanent liquidity or illiquidity situation. And, and so this way of thinking about the way we build our portfolios in context of how many dollars do I have invested in these entities or these vehicles, which themselves embed all sorts of different risks. Right. And, we, fo- and we focus on the balance sheet that we have and the way that we've invested that. And we think about portfolio construction and allocation on the basis of how many dollars do I have invested in this, quote, asset class, whenever underneath the hood, it changes. This idea that the appropriate amount of, of risk to have in equities is defined by all the decisions that every corporate executive has ever made about the underlying risks of their decisions, the balance sheets they're building into this business. That's a great leap of faith. And I think that that leap of faith that's, is, is part of what's caused us to be so bought into this idea of yeah. equities as the way that we invest. But I think where it, where it, where it strikes home for me is that we, the, it's again, well, I'll call the, the casinofication of capital markets. Right, so so if you go to a casino, my my one dollar chip, my one dollar chip is the same as any one dollar chip. Right? There, there, there's no distinction between mm-hmm. and a five dollar chip is just five one dollar chips. You, you can see what kind of games I play because I'm right. thinking you know one one and five dollar chips. But to to your point, a a a piece of stock, right? It it embeds a lot of different things. You you can't say that oh this this share of company X Y Z is the same as a share of company A B C without looking at the entire you know called the capital structure of the company that being the easiest thing maybe to look at. Well, and the, and, the easiest, and, and the easiest way to sort of see the absurdity of this is to look at the recommendation that you know if, if you look to the the average financial advisor who points at a let's say a new twenty four or twenty five year old in the workplace trying to ask what should I, how should I allocate my four hundred one k. Well, young man, you are 24 years old. You should be 100% invested in equities. What is that? What is the embedded argument that that person's making? Well, the embedded argument that person's making is that for you, young man, the collective decisions of 5,000 different corporate executives, all of their investment bankers, all of their customers and clients who've determined the underlying risks of that business, how it's going to be capitalized, how much debt it's going to take out, what countries and companies it's going to do business with and in – all of those things magically conspire to create exactly the right amount of risk for you to take. It is just this magical and please characteristic. It's the most amazing coincidence, right? So yeah. you sort of see that. And, and that's the kind of convention, that sort of unnatural logic that's driven by our desire, I think, as humans to think of things as units, right? Subdividable mm-hmm. sub- Entities that we can say, I have this much of this and I have a unit of equities and that is all I'm invested in. Well, that's a non-static thing that you're invested in and it does change over time. But see, Rusty, I really do think that that this notion you're describing where it goes back to the notion of, of stocks and bonds as they initially were, that you have this 
fractional by buying this, I have a fractional ownership share of this company's operations, their cash flows in particular, but but embodying all these decisions that they're making. And and today I, I think that well, I know that when people think about investing, you're you're not investing that that's not what the meaning of investing is anymore. You're not getting that fractional ownership share in a real world company, it's cash flows, decisions, and the like. And maybe I want to own a share of stock. Maybe I want to have a, a slice of its debt. But, but, I, but in any case, I'm getting that fractional ownership of, the, of what that, that company does. And today, it's, there, there's none of that. It's all positioning around asset classes and you know, these, these aggre- aggregations and, and uh, again, the casinofication of this where we're talking about units, the fungibility of this unit versus that unit. And I, and I don't know if it's, it's just an inexorable part of mass society, but that's what is the, the inevitable result of so much money sloshing around capital markets, or whether it's not more sinister, but whether it's more part and parcel of what we started talking about, the inauthenticity, the lack of authenticity in modern life, because there's something to me very authentic about buying a piece of stock or a, or, a, or a piece of a bond issue where the meaning is, I own a piece of that company. That, to me, is authentic. Whereas we, we, we create these layers and these buffers and, the, again, these aggregations, and I think that's where the authenticity is lost. I think that that's right, and I, and I, but I also think that it can get worse. I mean, I think that, um, you know, in, in going back to the Hobson's Choice, um, as and going back to the political discussion as well, you know the inevitable outcome of all the actions that were taken by political leaders, especially starting in 1931, you know, Britain moving away from the gold standard, which really set off you know a series of of, of actions you know over you know over other currencies right. in Europe, which led to the marginalization of the Deutsche Mark and the lira, uh, which then led to the need for those countries, which now having currencies that really weren't capable of conducting trade in the open markets, had to bring things in-house and had to start really forcing the nationalization of their industries mm-hmm. just to control you know, and, and make sure that they were able to generate the economic output uh, that were required for, for, for the nations in the absence of a, a market currency that, that they could actually conduct global trade in. And so you, you look at the risk that we have now of trade protectionism, of border limitations, um, you know, the impact that that could have on trade. And then you start to think about the inexorable rise of populism and its historical analog to nationalization of industry. And even if it is a de facto nationalization of industry through the capital markets, through some mechanism that feels like right. capitalism. Right, right, right. Yeah. You still end up in a case where it's nationalism with a smiley face. In nation- the same way you have that's authoritarianism right. today with a smiley face. And if I could reiterate any point from from your writings more than any other, it's that authenticity, as we've discussed today, is so hard to pin down. I don't know if Bernie Sanders is authentic. I don't know if Donald Trump is authentic, or if they're both faking it. Right. I don't know, but at the end of the day, I do know that a patch of dirt in the ground is a patch of dirt in the ground and that a warehouse full of aluminum is a warehouse full of aluminum. And clearly a portfolio can't be built of real assets, 
But coming off of a 30-year period where investors have scaled out and moved real assets and commodities out of their portfolios because we've been in a falling interest rate environment and haven't seen inflation since the late 1970s, if there was one thing that investors probably ought to consider as they think about their portfolios in an increasingly inauthentic world subject to policy-based control of assets and owning actual assets that one can say is incontrovertibly authentic strikes me as being something that you know, all investors ought to consider. This really, that is really real. Hey, Rusty, this was great. Let's, let's, let's do this again really soon. I look forward to it. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Rusty. Thanks, Ben. See you next time.